0: This is Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Renewable energy like hydropower, wind, and solar are seen as viable alternatives to natural gas and coal because renewables don't emit CO2, a gas that contributes to climate change. But federal leadership on the issue has stagnated, so states like Connecticut are moving forward with their own plans to cut carbon emissions. One way to do that is through wind energy— Today, where we live, we learn about offshore wind projects that could be starting up in our region. In a few minutes, we'll talk with Vineyard Wind, one of the companies competing to provide Connecticut electricity from offshore wind farms. These companies need ports like Bridgeport and New London to serve as hubs for offshore wind projects. But the quasi-public agency in charge of some of those ports, the Connecticut Port Authority, is facing scrutiny for mismanagement issues. We'll get the latest that about those issues from the Connecticut Mirror's Keith Faneff coming up. First, the wind energy in the U.S. has grown Uh, Wind industry, rather, in the U.S., has grown in recent years. But could that change due to a federal tax credit expiring at the end of the year? To tell us more, joining us from NPR studios in Washington, D.C., is Amy Harder, who's a reporter covering energy and climate change at Axios. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, You're talking with us uh, here in Connecticut, where we're not too far from an actual offshore wind farm in Block Island. I believe it's the only uh, offshore wind farm up and running uh, in the U.S. Uh, You went out there as part of your reporting. So tell us, uh, describe for us what you saw.
1: Yeah, well, it's about 15 miles off the, the mainland of Rhode Island. And the day we went out there was, was quite windy. So we had waves up to six feet. We were doing some filming. So you can imagine it was a little bit tough for the, the cameraman to be filming with, with a rocky boat. But it was just uh, incredible to see these massive structures. The turbines uh, in, in, in waters are a lot bigger than the ones onshore. And that's part of the reason that there's a lot of appeal for offshore wind. Because the amount of electricity you can get is actually a lot more than than what you can get onshore.
0: And so, how big is this wind farm uh, off of Block Island, and how much electricity is it creating?
1: Yeah, so this this uh, wind farm off Rhode Island is only about uh, five turbines, which is very, very small. Most of the other projects are something like 100 turbines. Mm. And it's interesting because companies who are, are uh, proposing these projects, they talk in terms of megawatt, which of course is, is the, the metric for electricity. But when you say something like, you know, 30 megawatts, it doesn't sound like very much, and it isn't. But it's also only five turbines. So I like to tell readers how many turbines are going to be in the water because Mm -hmm. that gives readers a better sense. And so uh, in addition to visiting Block Island, we also went to the the potential likely future site for one of the world's largest wind farms, which is off uh, Atlantic City, New Jersey, and that will be 100 turbines. And it will be able to power about a half a million homes. And so the projects. in the pipeline now, including ones in Connecticut, are really just a magnitude order larger. And so I think, obviously, as the projects grow, so does the opposition and concern.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, these turbines that are offshore are much larger than what we might have seen, maybe onshore uh, at the Cape or maybe in western Massachusetts. Uh, so explain uh, for our listeners, you know, why there's such interest in offshore wind. You mentioned that it's definitely a more windy out there. But uh, when we think about uh, turbines in our backyards, that's not something everybody wants to see.
1: Right. So I would say there's two main advantages for offshore wind over onshore wind. And so one advantage. In- advantage I already mentioned was the fact that you can get more electricity more frequently offshore because it's windier. The other one is that there's relative less opposition because it isn't right in the backyards of people. And NIMBYism, of course, not in my backyard, is a very classic type of opposition that every type of infrastructure project usually faces. However, as I know we'll uh, get into, you know, there is still a lot of opposition to some of these projects. And that's both from other users in the ocean such as fisheries, and then also people who have homes along the shoreline and are concerned about the cable that will need to be installed to move the electricity, you know, 15 or so miles offshore onto the land in order to connect to the electricity grid. And those cables are buried, but it's nonetheless still a disruption for people.
0: I mentioned we'll be speaking to Vineyard Wind, just one of three companies uh, that uh, is looking to compete here in Connecticut to bring uh, electricity from offshore wind farms. Uh, These projects, if they come online, we're talking about over by Martha's Vineyard. Could you describe where in in the ocean these wind turbines could be constructed?
1: Yeah, well, the key difference between all of the wind farms uh, in the pipeline now, and pretty much the only one that was uh, considered before is that Cape Wind, which many of your listeners may be familiar with. Cape Wind was actually supposed to be America's first offshore wind farm. It was just it was proposed for just a couple of miles off Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod, and uh, the, the proponents of that project tried for 17 years. They finally pulled the plug just a couple of years ago. They tried for 17 years to get that project uh, done, and. And operating, and they got really close for a while, and, and I covered that pretty closely over the years. And ultimately, it failed for a whole multitude of reasons. But one main one is that wealthy fit people, including the Kennedy family, who ha- who you know, have a compound on um, in that area, didn't want to see the turbines from their property, and so. It didn't go through. So now these projects, you can barely see them on the horizon when you're on the beach. And, mm-hmm. and that's really important because ultimately, while there is opposition now, it is out of sight, out of mind in a way that wasn't there before.
0: Amy Harder is with us from NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. She's a reporter covering energy and climate change for Axios. Uh, We invited Amy on to uh, learn more about offshore wind projects uh, that are coming online, or hoping to uh, in this region, uh, specifically uh, in Connecticut now, uh, three companies that have put together proposals uh, to bring uh, wind energy uh, to our state. We'll be talking with one of them in just a few moments. You can join our conversation, 888 720 If you have a question about uh, these offshore wind projects, uh, I'm curious, Amy, uh, we see uh, interest uh, lately in recent years uh, from uh, consumers as well as some politicians that uh, don't want to see our country rely so much on fossil fuels because of climate change. I'm curious how far advanced uh, European countries are in terms of bringing offshore wind projects online there.
1: Yeah, so Europe really is the leader in offshore wind. Denmark and uh, the UK are really uh, the ones that have perfected this technology. And uh, Denmark gets a you know, very large proportion, something like 60% or more of its electricity comes from wind, most largely offshore wind. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that Europe as a continent is just far more progressive and has traditionally been more concerned about climate change and environmental issues compared to the United States. But also importantly, uh, Europeans are also more accustomed to paying higher electricity prices. And currently right now, offshore wind remains more expensive than other forms of electricity like natural gas or coal. And so that's one reason why Europe has really led the world in this technology. And in fact, now a lot of the companies you're seeing uh, put in investment here in the United States for offshore wind are actually European companies. The, the company that we've worked with, which is um, for our reporting and the one who's the leader in offshore wind around the world is Orsted, which is a Denmark-based uh, company. And it actually used to be an oil and gas company. And so you're seeing Shell and Equinor, which is a Norwegian-based oil company, you know, they're taking an interest in this because there's actually a lot of similarities between offshore wind and
0: offshore oil. Uh, So Tell us uh, more about the similarities when you say that
1: yeah so the the types of massive the the massive structures that are going into the water, whether it 's an offshore oil rig or an offshore wind rig, are actually quite similar and and i 've been to both now after mm-hmm. my trip to block island and The International Energy Agency, which is sort of a global intergovernmental uh, energy research group, uh, they recently concluded that the costs for offshore wind can be about forty percent of the same costs that offshore oil faces, and that 's because the structure that the, the 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 platforms that either the turbine or the the drilling rig go on are, are very similar, and so companies that are servicing the offshore oil company offshore oil industry are the same that are servicing the offshore wind. And in fact, the platforms that were built in Block Island were made in Louisiana, um, which is of course home to America's offshore oil industry. And mm-hmm. so I, that's one reason why I think the potential here is is a lot. Larger than it is, for say onshore solar, because you have these really deep-pocketed companies putting some of their money into it.
0: And you mentioned Orsted, which is also another company uh, hoping to uh, uh, be chosen as a, a company that can uh, bring wind energy to Connecticut. And again, we'll be talking more about a uh, Connecticut uh, focus uh, in just a little bit. You know, I'm bringing this all up also because we know uh, our country is withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, this would have uh, helped with uh, goals to reduce emissions Uh, in um, our country, and I'm just wondering how that impacts uh, these projects uh, when we have an administration uh, that uh, also seems uh, uh, to have an issue with wind energy. I just want to play a clip from President Trump who spoke at a rally about uh, renewables uh, in
2: August. And then all of a sudden it stops, the wind and the televisions go off, and your wives and husbands say, darling, I want to watch Donald Trump on television tonight, (laughs) but the wind stopped blowing and I can't watch.
3: There's no electricity in the house, darling.
0: He's poking fun at this idea of uh, offshore and uh, onshore uh, uh, wind turbines uh, helping uh, provide electricity uh, to Americans. I mean, what's your take, Amy, from reporting? And what's been going on in terms of uh, rolling back regulations on fossil fuels that uh, can impact the growth here of wind energy?
1: There's a lot going on here and it's always uh, as has typically been the case with the Trump administration a little bit hard to understand what are the motivations here so just to unpack this a little bit so so it's very clear that President Trump does not like wind energy and and Trump himself is not he's not the most uh, you know he changes his opinions on a lot of things but there's a few things that he's been very uh, reliably opposed or supportive of and one of them has been that he really doesn't like wind and my sort of I talked to say one uh, obvious reason for that is he was uh, fighting an offshore wind farm that was, in his words, obstructing the views of his golf, one of his golf courses in Scotland. Uh, That actually recently uh, just got decided in a court there and, and he lost that battle. So there's just sort of some nimbyism there that is a legacy issue that I think is informing the president's views. However, I think President Trump's hatred for wind so far doesn't seem to be actually impacting all of these mm-hmm. offshore wind projects, which seems odd because I think if he if he was if he cared enough to learn about this, I think it would be a net negative for all of these companies. I don't think there's any way that Trump could learn that oh look at what my administration is doing to help all these offshore wind projects and support them. He would almost certainly oppose them and try to to, you know, slow down the process as president, if that was something he cared enough about. I I can't tell at this point in time if he does. Now to your other point about fossil fuels. Now, of course, this has been the core of this administration's agenda: is is reviving the coal industry, which uh, they have not succeeded in doing, and just bring and repealing all of the regulations that the Obama administration had issued. And so that's where the president's political energy has gone. And so that's why the offshore wind issues are sort of bubbling beneath his radar, and for now have avoided the spotlight. Which, again, as I say, is actually. Pr- probably good for the industry, given the the, the the history that Trump has with offshore wind. And as far as the Paris Climate Agreement goes, I certainly think You know, and to be clear, of course, it is moving forward just without the United States involvement. I think the U.S. involvement in that obviously would have been an overall positive step and positive boost for offshore wind. But it's not a make or break uh, issue. I think more eminent and tangible uh, issues such as the uh, investment tax credit that is expiring at the end of the year and may be uh, renewed in Congress. Those types of things have a much more tangible impact on these companies' bottom lines. And so that's something that I think these companies are watching more closely.
0: You mentioned that tax credit that's set to expire. So uh, tell us, uh, in recent years, uh, how much uh, that incentive has driven uh, these uh, companies to uh, invest in wind energy?
1: Yeah, it's been critical. And I think that you know would be a great question for um, the head of Vineyard Wind to talk about as well, because I know some of their projects, in particular the uh, one in Massachusetts, which is the, the focus of a government delay at the moment is really depending upon that tax credit. And again, these tax credits are important because it, they help lower the cost of electricity. In the United States, the cost of electricity is just less than what it is in Europe. So these incentives are really important. Now, this is pretty normal for any sort of new energy technology to get government incentives onshore wind and solar have had still continue in fact to have these tax incentives for them the proponents of on um of wind and solar like to say that fracking, you know, the controversial natural gas and oil extraction technique also had government support before it really took off. So um, this is pretty normal. And I tend to think there's probably greater than not odds that Congress will extend this tax credit because there's greater awareness and concern for climate change, yet there's really no policy on the table for Republicans and Democrats to support in in the name of climate change other than these tax incentives. So for that reason, I do think it's somewhat likely uh, that it will sort of squeak through at the end of the year.
0: Uh, you mentioned, uh, giving up some context on what's happening on the federal level. Uh, meanwhile, you have states like Connecticut uh, that are doing uh, regional efforts. So, Reggie, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, a uh, uh, mandatory agreement among northeastern eastern states uh, that we can also reach certain uh, c- emission reduction targets by uh, certain years. And so, that's also driving uh, this investment in wind energy because the federal government's taking one tact and, and states are trying to be proactive and keep keep it moving forward,
1: yes, definitely. You know, in reaction to the Trump administration retreating on climate change, both uh, on a federal policy and also the global climate level, the states, particularly in New England and Mid-Atlantic, but also, of course, California, they're really sort of stepping in and doubling down and issuing perhaps even more aggressive policies, and they would have absent the Trump retreat. And so that is, I think, maybe second or somewhat equal to the the, the government tax policy uh, is really important mm-hmm. to continue to have that uh, incentive for these companies to invest here, uh, after Absent government, federal government incentives. Now, I think it's important to note that the Interior Department, uh, which is you know the the U.S. agency, U.S. government agency. Controlling federal waters, it has been somewhat, a uh, uh, little bit uh, on and off in terms of its support for offshore wind, um, but mostly. And as of right now, we're sort of waiting to get more information about this broader review that the administ- the Interior Department is doing. But for now, it does appear that the Interior Department is sort of moving cautiously to support offshore wind. And so, again, that's sort of uh, absent the the Trump. Trump effect of the fact that Trump doesn't like wind. But uh, uh, one government official recently said at a conference that he supports offshore wind, the interior secretary himself has been less vocal, but he hasn't been uh, vocally critical either. So it's a little bit like reading tea leaves. But I think for now, the industry is trying to be cautiously optimistic that they won't run into the Trump Twitter problem, or, you know, more predictable problems, which is things like what Cape Wind ran into, in terms of local and political opposition uh, to the project itself.
0: Amy Harder is a reporter covering energy and climate change at Axio. She's joining us here on Where We Live as we learn more about offshore wind projects that can impact our region. Coming up after the break, the CEO of Vineyard Wind will join us. He's leading one of the companies that has responded to Connecticut's requests for offshore wind proposals. Do you have a question about how this will impact you? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanschel. The state of Connecticut has set a goal for a clean energy future, and it's looking to wind energy. Governor Lamont wants up to 2,000 megawatt of electricity from offshore wind injected into the state by 2030. To get there, the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP, is weighing three proposals, or proposals from three offshore wind companies. Uh, Vineyard Wind is one of them. Joining me now in studio is Lars Peterson, uh, the company's CEO. Uh, We wanted to learn more about Vineyard Wind and its plans for Connecticut Ports to support offshore wind farms. Lars, welcome to the show.
3: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so, uh, you're from Denmark? And That's correct. And you've been working uh, in the States. Uh, uh, first off, uh, you had a, a, a big project, uh, uh, a partnership or a proposal that was accepted by the state of Massachusetts that could bring uh, wind energy to impact uh, Massachusetts residents. So, can you update us on, on what's happening there and how that could impact your Connecticut proposals?
3: Yeah, so um, Vineyard Wind uh, won the first large-scale offshore wind contract in 2018. Uh, It was put out by the state of Massachusetts, 800 megawatts. Uh, So we became the first large-scale project in the U.S. to go through the permitting uh, of this new technology in the U.S. uh, We have been progressing well, and uh, most recently, given that the industry has actually been growing immensely after we demonstrated with our project that Not only could we deliver clean energy, but we could also deliver affordable energy. States up and down the eastern seaboard responded. So the industry grew from basically our project, 800 megawatt, Mm -hmm. what is now into uh, 25,000 megawatts. And the federal government has decided that before they will approve the first project, which was our project, they want to do a more programmatic review of all offshore wind farms planned up and down the eastern seaboard. So right now we are waiting for the final federal approval. We have more or less all our state and local permits in hand.
0: Um, how does this uh, uh, this tax credit that's expiring impact uh, uh, your bottom line, but also uh, what your your company promised Massachusetts in terms of delivering uh, super cheap energy?
3: It's uh, it's clear that the uh, tax credits are part of the commercial proposal. Uh, when the federal government introduces a delay, there are mechanisms in the tax code that allows you to uh, delay uh, some of the tax credits, and we're in uh, in a constant dialogue with Treasury on on how to handle this. We uh, we, keep to be, uh, we, we continue to be very, very confident that we will deliver the first large-scale project, and we're basically waiting for the approval to move forward.
0: And so uh, you have leased uh, federal waters to build, again, this massive offshore wind farm off the coast of, of New, Le- New England near Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and so I'm just curious, again, if you could describe for our listeners in terms of megawatts that we're talking about, how does that impact a Connecticut resident in terms of, of their electricity and their electricity bill? Will it impact them?
3: We think it will pop, uh, impact in a positive way. So uh, our project in Massachusetts is actually deemed to save ratepayers 1.6 billion uh, dollars over the lifetime compared to the cheapest alternative that the states would uh, the state would otherwise have had. Um, as was described earlier on in your segment, the reason why we're here is basically because the fundamentals are really great for offshore wind. You have strong winds at sea. You have constant winds at sea. You have the peak production when the System needs it during the winter time, so you can create cheap and affordable uh, uh, clean energy. And while doing that, you can create an industry that creates jobs uh, during construction, but also during the 30 years where the uh, projects have to be serviced. Uh, so it's a job creation. It's a clean and affordable energy we believe that we can demonstrate that to Connecticut as well, that we can deliver clean and affordable energy. Mm.
0: Uh, Amy Harder is also with us from NPR's Washington studio, uh, again, a reporter covering energy and climate change at Axios. Uh, Amy, what are some other considerations uh, that the federal government uh, with their evaluation and assessment, but also uh, states like Connecticut should be thinking about uh, in terms of uh, if and when these wind turbines uh, go up uh, in the ocean? What are some of the impacts that people uh, should be? Should be considering
1: the the concerns that the uh, Interior Department uh, in at the U.S. government level is looking at. The biggest one is the impact on other users in the ocean. So commercial fisheries. You know, think of about the the the, the food that we eat that comes from the ocean. These are the people that are concerned about it. And I know um, this is obviously something that Vineyard Wind follows closely. Uh, so I think that's the the biggest one. I think on a on a larger scale. Uh, as offshore wind you know if all of these projects uh, come through, I think the the energy department has said that there's the amount of megawatts that are in a uh, proposal right now uh, up and down the coast in New England and the mid Atlantic could power almost 10 million homes. And so, as offshore wind and onshore wind and solar grow to be a significant percentage of our US electricity mix, the question of ensuring that there is always electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, available is, is is important, and of course, Trump says falsely that when it's not windy, you can't turn the TV on. But he, he does tap into a concern that electricity regulators need to to keep an eye on as as these projects become a bigger part of the mix. And and again, that's why offshore wind is so appealing because it is more reliable than onshore wind.
0: Uh, Lars Peterson, again, CEO of Vineyard Wind. So how is your company addressing some of those concerns, including impact on fisheries?
3: Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a good and relevant question. Of course, if you've have had unimpeded access to the ocean for centuries, uh, you are nervous if there's a new industry coming that want to uh, co-share the ocean with you. I think we did already in our first proposal try to propose a way of orienting and spacing the turbines that would allow for commercial fishing to coexist uh, It's also clear that uh, we're not always in agreement with the uh, the commercial fishing industry how wide and which orientation it it should be uh, uh, laid out at. I think we have responded to some of the concerns. Uh, I think we as an industry have actually responded, and we will soon come out with a proposal that we think uh, will be uh, very responsive to the concerns we have had. Um, We have seen in other parts of the world that fisheries and uh, offshore wind can coexist. The turbines are spaced very far apart. Uh, They are more more than a mile apart, uh, what we are proposing right now. So that should allow for fishing vessels to go in between uh, and continue fishing and and do what they have done for centuries. And also what we have seen in other parts of of the world is that when you put these structures out uh, in the ocean, it actually creates artificial reefs. So you tend to see more fish congregating and more fish actually being around uh, because of these structures. So if we can find a good way allowing for commercial fishing to continue what they have been doing, and build these. uh, Maybe it's a win-win for everybody.
0: Uh, Did your company uh, bring in uh, this uh, concern and and trying to work with fisheries uh, early enough in the process, would you say?
3: I think uh, with hindsight, you can always do more. I think we were the first project to bring on a a fisheries liaison, so basically us paying someone in the fishing community to give uh, uh, feedback to us on how we could best design this project. Uh, We have just recently named... uh, another fisheries liaison for the state of Connecticut as we want to build a project here. I think with hindsight, we could have done a, a better job. We always had it in mind. Uh, we didn't see eye to eye with everybody on what the best solution is. And we have responded to that so that we can move forward. We, we want to be uh, coexisting with uh, commercial fishing. It shouldn't be either offshore wind or commercial fishing. It should be both. And, uh, and we, uh, we are very confident that we can do that.
0: Again, Lars Peterson is CEO of Vineyard Wind here on where we live as we talk about these offshore wind projects uh, that have been proposed, uh, again, uh, closer to Martha's Vineyard, but again, bringing wind energy to the state of Connecticut. Your company is uh, one of three that uh, has submitted proposals to the state of Connecticut. Uh, there's Constitution Wind, the collaboration between Orsted, which we heard from Amy, uh, another Danish company, and, and Eversource as well. And then Mayflower Wind, which is a collaboration between Shell, and another European company, EDP Renewables. So tell us more about your proposal for Connecticut LARS. And uh, exactly, uh, you know, with the competition for uh, bringing wind energy to our state, uh, the State Department of Envi- Energy and Environmental Protection will soon be announcing uh, uh, their uh, choice uh, after a review. orstead It also has a a partnership or trying to get a partnership in place with the new London State Pier. And so there's a lot of um, uh, moving parts, so to speak. And how do you set your proposal apart from
3: these? Thank you. We are uh, super excited to participate in uh, in the state RFP. I think if you think big picture about the Eastern Seaboard, it is just one of the best places in the world to build offshore wind. And that means that we can build quite a lot of it without... Uh, c- creating, you know, nimbyism that you can see it. We think we can uh, coexist uh, well with commercial uh, fishing. And given that these projects are, they end up with mm-hmm. a wind turbine. That's the visible thing you can see. But before you get there, it's actually a massive marine construction project. So while we build these projects, we will create a lot of jobs mm-hmm. in the States and in, the, in and around the ports that we'll be using. So we have named our uh, five proposals. We have we responded with five different proposals, Park City Wind, we want to be centered in and around Bridgeport. Uh, we want to uh, revitalize, under, underutilize the waterfronts to construction harbors and long-term service facilities. And we do that because if we, when we see this industry growing up and down the eastern seaport, one of the things that are in short supply are ports, mm-hmm. but more notably ports that don't sit behind bridges. The way you build these projects is that you have basically a floating crane, a floating crane that has long legs that it can lift to the seabed and lift the crane out of the water. Uh, And in order to get those uh, crane vessels into uh, a port, you need a port that doesn't sit behind bridges. And there are very few of those on the eastern seaport, actually. So when we look at this business opportunity for us up and down the eastern seaport, we can see that we need to develop 10 ports. We have maybe four or five uh, right now. And Connecticut is actually very fortunate that they they have two of those sites. They have New London. Mm And Bridgeport, we want to transform that into uh, the next uh, offshore wind port that we can use for these projects, but also for other projects.
0: So uh, your choice in Bridgeport does that have to do with Orsted in negotiations with the state to operate New London State Pier? Would you have any uh, ability to operate out of there if if the state uh, awards uh, some of uh, you know awards or accepts a proposal from say Orsted and also you? Is that possible?
3: I think it could be possible. I I think uh, the the answer is not either or. It's actually we need both uh, to continue this industry. And I think for Connecticut, the opportunity is to create jobs as part of the projects that we deliver for Connecticut. But we as a business, we actually see this as a port facility or a region that we can use for projects that we're bidding into New York or to Massachusetts because we're in short supply of these uh, ports. So for Connecticut, going first, going big, And uh, trying to plant a flag with some of the key infrastructure could mean that jobs would be created as part of the first project, but also as the industry develops. Uh,
0: the day of New London reporting that Orsted uh, and energy company Eversource uh, have sweetened their deal, so to speak, in their bid to supply offshore wind to Connecticut, now promising $100 million to a variety of local agencies and initiatives, if chosen by the state. Um, so how does that impact, again, your proposal? And you know, what are you doing uh, to entice uh, lawmakers to choose your company?
3: Um. I think uh, we try to create a very comprehensive package. Ultimately, we want to deliver clean and affordable energy to uh, Connecticut consumers. We are a business. We are strong believers in offshore wind being a future, a large part of the energy mix here on the eastern seaboard. So we want to create a new port in and around Bridgeport. We uh, want to attract manufacturing facilities. We have actually made a agreement with a company that has existed here in in Connecticut for more than 150 years, uh, Right that... They are currently supplying cables for uh, power projects onshore that we want to help them get into the global offshore wind uh, business by we have teamed up with them and saying we want to buy your product uh, so that you can convert it from onshore to offshore. So we want to develop a port. We want to bring manufacturing into Bridgeport. We want Keyrite to build a new uh, factory and we want to create our long-term O&M hub, so operation and maintenance out of Bridgeport. So we have that and then uh, we have also teamed up with uh, unions uh, guaranteeing that we will be creating uh, well-paying jobs uh, while we are building these projects as well.
0: well Amy Harder is with us as well, a reporter covering energy and climate change at Axios. Amy, I'm wondering uh, in your reporting, uh, as we talk about this uh, this uh, competitive bid process going on here in Connecticut with these three companies, uh, is that typical um, in terms of you know other projects that are uh, coming online or the possibility along the eastern seaboard?
1: Yes. Um, there's been a lot of competition um, for the leases uh, in, in federal and state waters. And and I understand that there's been even some oil companies that uh, have not won any leases that are trying to, to bid on some of these. So I think you see a lot of interest. And I think that's uh, indicative of you know both the, the potential here, but also, again, the crossover between the oil and the wind industry. I, I asked Bloomberg New Energy Finance, to crunch some numbers for me for a story recently, and they found that 30% of the leases in, in uh, the U.S. Uh, have some involvement from oil and gas companies. And that's not even including Orsted, which used to be an oil and gas company. Mm-hmm. So, so I really think there's been a lot of interest and you know, more interest, uh, I would say, than leases for offshore oil. Um, and I think that's just indicative of you know, where um, the industry writ large is going and you know, dynamics in the oil industry as well. Uh, so, so it's certainly been interesting, something that I will continue to watch to see if if the leasing continues to be really competitive, even as there's this sort of, um, you know, you want to call it a hiccup or a speed bump or, or a big obstacle in terms of this review the Interior Department mm-hmm. is pursuing.
0: Uh, Lars?
3: Yeah, I, I just want to add that I, th- I think it is important to um, understand that this has grown to be a huge business opportunity, a huge industry uh, coming off the ground on the eastern seaboard right now with 25,000 megawatts. Mm -hmm. It's $100 billion that is going to be invested up and down the eastern seaboard in the next 10 years. It is going to create thousands and thousands of jobs. Our projects that we are proposing for Connecticut, it's $1.6 billion in economic activity, 12,000 jobs. And we do that because these are big and bulky components. It's actually a marine construction project. It ends with an offshore wind turbine. That's what you can see. But these are large marine construction projects, very complex projects, but also big uh, job creators. So I think the states have shown a great interest in in harnessing uh, the wind offshore, but also uh, uh, capturing uh, the economic development opportunities that follows this. It's, It's a it's a quite unique situation, and it's a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a new industry that revitalizes waterfronts up and down the eastern seaport.
0: Is it frustrating uh, to see our federal uh, federal government uh, here in the United States uh, uh, taking their time uh, when we've already heard that European uh, nations are ahead of the, the, the curve in terms of bringing uh, renewables uh, to people?
3: I think long-term for us, it's important that the federal government has a predictable process and that we can we know what the parameters are to successfully go through permitting. Um, We would, of course, have hoped that we hadn't had this delay. It impacts our projects, the first one. But we think that we will uh, um, uh, find a way through this so that we can have a predictable uh, way of going through the permitting process and also a predictable way for other ocean users to see this industry developing so we don't have to repeat uh, the same discussions uh, project by project, but that we have an industry-wide solution. So, Long term, we are extremely bullish on the potential for offshore wind. We want to be part of this industry growing here. A predictable uh, federal uh, process is part of it. We are happy that there's a large-scale review, and we look forward to concluding uh, that review and moving forward with Mm -hmm. the individual projects.
0: (laughs) And then just to clarify again, uh, these delays uh, that, uh, that you face, your company faces, again, how does that impact the, uh, the cheap rates that you promised uh, in these proposals uh, that, could, that Connecticut residents may see?
3: So that, that wouldn't change anything. When we submitted our bids for Connecticut, we were well aware of, of the current delays for the first project, so we built that into our plans and our prices, so nothing would change uh, um, in, in, in that proposal.
0: Uh, Before uh, we let you go, Lars Peterson, again, who's CEO of Vineyard Wind. Uh, In Connecticut, there's uh, been a lot of attention on uh, issues within the Connecticut Port Authority, which is uh, the economic development arm uh, to help, uh, say, Connecticut suppliers uh, do business with a company like yours uh, with these uh, projects, uh, these offshore wind farms that are hoping to come online. Uh, What is your take on uh, the mismanagement uh, that has been uh, widely reported? And how does that impact the way that you hope to do business with, with, say, some of these local companies uh, if you get the proposal accepted in Bridgeport?
3: So our our proposal in Bridgeport is a a fully private initiative. So uh, I'm aware that there are some discussions in and around New London. I, you know, ultimately we hope that New London and Bridgeport becomes a a port. I I can't really speak to the details. It's Mm -hmm. not really part of our proposal, and and we have made a proposal that would be a a fully private initiative. Mm.
0: I wanted to go back to Amy Harder uh, from Axios. Uh, uh, Listeners uh, um, of our station aren't just uh, concerned about uh, electricity costs. They're also concerned about climate change. And so when uh, they hear about uh, these offshore projects uh, along the eastern seaboard, in terms of uh, a timeline that's realistic for people that they would see uh, these projects coming online, Amy, is it too soon to tell?
1: I think a lot of the projects are slated for the early twenty twenties to mid twenty twenties, and and that's just because number one, some of these delays are having uh, somewhat of an impact, and I know Lars can. Um, has spoken to that about about his company's projects, but I think you know these things. Just the the permitting process is so much more arduous in the United States than in Europe. So uh, the an Orsted official told me that the there's about twenty government agencies that a company needs to go through for the permitting here in the United States. In Europe, uh, he said there's just one basically, and so that really illustrates to you why it takes a lot of time. And so so I think that explains why 2022 and 3 and 4 is when you can really see these projects in the pipeline and and I tend to think that the concern for climate change and the urgency around the issue will only grow which I think will continue to increase the the societal uh, support for these things and the 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 less uh, salience of, of the NIMBYism arguments. I think that was more powerful, you know, when Cape Wind was going through the process. I don't think NIMBYism holds as much water as it did before. Now, that's different from the concerns from the commercial fisheries who, you know, unfortunately are also dealing with the impacts of climate change itself with warming waters and and so, you know, these fisheries are s- sort of facing a one-two punch um, and so, but yeah, I would say mid-2020s is given and take when a lot of these projects are hoping to come online.
0: Again, Amy Harder joining us today from NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. Amy, thanks for your time from Axios. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Also, Lars Peterson, CEO of Vineyard Wind, we appreciate your flexibility in coming in today. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpethanchel. After the break, Connecticut Mirror's Keith Fanef joins us to bring us up to date on the issues I mentioned at the Connecticut Port Authority. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We hope we uh, got you up to speed on this competition for offshore wind energy in Connecticut. But there's another issue that's important if the state wants to support this growing industry, and that's uh, uh, the Connecticut Port Authority and how it supports economic development uh, to uh, specific ports that could also support these offshore wind uh, uh, companies. Joining us now to tell us more about what's been going on with the Connecticut Port Authority is Keith Faniffs in studio with me. You well, reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, Keith, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the Connecticut Port Authority, uh, one uh, of several quasi-public agencies in the state. Uh, when was it created? And you know, talk more about its purpose. Sure.
2: Well, it was it was created approximately five years ago, um, and Connecticut has always sort of had this um, a chip on its shoulder about its deep water ports. The thought that we haven't done enough with the economic development potential for New London and New Haven and Bridgeport. Um, so And Connecticut has had success with the Connecticut Airport Authority in expanding the role of Bradley and other airports. So that's the goal here, Mm -hmm. to get a group that's going to do everything they can to um, market the region and help work with uh, businesses and other groups who are looking to do things uh, in Long Island Sound, around Long Island Sound, um. So uh, it's 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 a it's um a group that that there were a lot of expectations tied to.
0: Uh, so I mentioned earlier, uh, Orsted and Eversource is one of the companies uh, that's actually in negotiations with uh, the state, I believe, to uh, take over operations or to work out of the new London state pier. So that would
2: be an example of the port authorities involved in those negotiations. Right. The, I always still want to say DEP, but there's, there's an extra E now. The Department of yep. Energy and Environmental Protection um, basically invited companies to put out RFPs for wind generation facilities this Summer And as you talked about earlier in the show, you had proposals. There's one that would be about 65 miles offshore from New London. There would be others also, um, one uh, offshore off Bridgeport. Um, And it would mean not just wind generation, but there would be business in the area, whether it's assembling these, um, doing other type of support services on them. So they're – uh, an economic development um, driver, a magnet, mm-hmm. and so what's been going
0: on in recent months related to um, mismanagement at the Connecticut Port Authority? Yeah,
2: well, that's that's the other thing is that when you're when you're trying to generate excitement around, I mean, state government never likes a public black eye. Period. <laughs> I mean, they're just not fun. Uh, and then when you're trying to generate excitement around something, it's definitely you know it it throws water on on the fire. And in this case. Um, things were coming out this summer uh, that the authority had been spending somewhat liberally. There were reports that the uh, the former chairwoman of the authority had um, used authority funds to purchase uh, – they, they purchased uh, photos, professional photos of the uh, chairwoman's daughter and they were hung in the uh, – taken by the chairwoman's daughter and they were hung in the authority offices. Um, the state auditors found a lot of uh, fine dining and money spent in some cases on hotel stays that didn't make sense. The authority has offices in Old Saybrook and they stayed some official stayed at an expensive hotel in Mystic for a meeting in Darien. And if you're doing this map in your head, <laughs> they, you know, the, <laughs> the they, they, not everything lines up. Yeah. Well, just to be more specific, so uh, auditors
0: finding uh, almost $2,000 spent on alcohol, 500 plus on restaurant charges during hotel stays, $3,000 on photographs by the gen- then-chairwoman's daughter. Um, we did reach out uh, to uh, DECD, David Corus, who's now the interim uh, chairperson right. of the Connecticut Port Authority, uh, and he writes, nothing in the audit came as a surprise to us, and now they're working on policies, procedures, controls, uh, quote to mitigate the risk of issues occurring at the Connecticut Port Authority in the future. You know this brings a uh, the question to many: uh, is that you know why does this have to happen to start? That there are not uh, uh, shouldn't these leaders of uh, these agencies be following certain ethics and to not have to have this black eye to then right. cause a uh, change to be
2: made? Well, Lucy, you. You you might have been channeling Governor Lamont there because he was saying, <laughs> "Don't say that." Why <laughs> did why did this have to happen? Because let's just point something out: he inherited this problem. Mm. Okay, Governor Lamont took office in January. All of this had uh, all, all these appointments all had been up and running um, under prior legislatures and pri- the, the prior administration of Governor Malloy. So he comes in in January, and his folks start to hear these same rumblings, and they're looking into it. So they tried to move. Even before this last report from the state auditors, like you pointed out, the governor put in his deputy DECD commissioner, David Corris, to basically go in and ride herd over this. Um, He's assigned staff from his budget office, from Connecticut Innovations, which is our Uh quasi-public economic development arm. They're going in trying to rewrite policies and make sure that businesses looking to develop in our ports think that we have our act together, So I'm sure he was saying, why does this have to be going on now? But you also raise another point, which is legislators are also saying, what if this is going on with other quasi-publics? We don't know that it is. I don't want to speculate. Or what if there's a flaw in the way we get these off the ground? Maybe we need to take this all the way back to formula- just to make sure the problem is not more widespread.
0: I was thinking back to uh, when there was conversation about whether there should be a, a toll authority uh, implemented if tolls ever come to the state of Connecticut. Uh, no wonder people are concerned about uh, these quasi-publics coming online uh, when there are issues like this, Keith.
2: Yeah, because there also is a there's a myth about quasi-public. Uh, I, I was um, talking with some of your staff yesterday and I said being quasi-public is kind of like being quasi-pregnant. It's really not possible. These are still public (laughs) entities. They're created by the state legislature. Mm -hmm. The legislature doesn't give birth to private entities. They created them. Mm -hmm. They can take them away. We call them quasi-public because they look like they're part public and they're part private. They have aspects that are similar to Mm -hmm. private entities, but they're absolutely accountable to the taxpayers of the state of Connecticut. That's why these black eyes are so- Mm -hmm. Embarrassing. Uh, you have a story in the
0: mirror this morning. Is it time to move on? Uh, should the uh, should lawmakers in the General Assembly continue to ask for public hearings on this?
2: Well, and particularly legislators from the shoreline, from southeastern Connecticut, from both parties. And people thought, and well, initially the calls were coming from the Republicans, and some people thought maybe there was partisan politics at play. Uh, prominent Democrats from southeastern Connecticut, like Senator Kathy Austin, Representative Christine Conley from Groton. Um, They're saying, no, we need to pull this apart. And the the legislative committee that would have jurisdiction, the transportation committee, uh, one of the two co-chairs, Roland Lamar from uh, New Haven, has said, we really need one more public hearing. This is not about beating a dead horse. This is We'd like to sit down, talk to the auditors. I mean, even when you're looking at a state audit, that's a summary of everything they found. It's not because the auditors are hiding anything. They have Mm -hmm. Uh, enormous amounts of supporting documentation that are, are are also there that just don't all go into the final audit. I, I think they want to. I think they definitely want to sit down and, and break things down with them and, and have a more candid discussion about just how severe the problem was. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I want to thank Keith Fan for coming in uh, to provide uh, more context on this story that has received uh, headlines in recent months. Again, a mismanagement at the Connecticut Port Authority. The state says uh, they are making changes uh, as we speak. Uh, i love to have you back on, Keith, to see uh, to what, comes, uh, what comes out of all of this. And, of course, when the session starts, too. Uh, I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff, Thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Uh, you can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Have a great weekend.